Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast, interview episode on rulership and ruler cults in Ptolemaic Egypt with Henry Bowen. Hi everyone. Today I have with me Henry Bohan, a PhD student at University of Wales Trinity St. David. Henry is an Egyptologist, primarily focusing on the reign of Ptolemy II Philadelphus and the development of the Ptolemaic ruler cult from the perspective of native Egyptian history, traditions, and customs. He also is the student of a friend and previous guest of this show, Dr. Kyle Erickson, who joined us earlier this year to discuss the Seleucid Empire. So, let me say thank you for reaching out and coming on to the show to talk about your work. That's no problem. Thank you for having me on. So, Henry, normally I have ancient historians and classicists joining me on my show, but you're the first Egyptologist I've been able to speak with. Egyptology can cover a pretty large span of time, to put it mildly. So, could you tell us a bit about your career and how you came to study Egyptian history and the Ptolemies in particular? Sure. Um, I think my interest in ancient Egypt kind of happened when I was like very, very young, probably the age of like three or four. I don't really remember like a time when I wasn't interested in it. And like I have very vivid memories of the side kind of the death mask of Tutankhamun and of the pyramids and a lot of kind of little children's books on ancient Egypt. So I, I was fascinated with it from a very, very young age. And then as I got older and I like read into it more, I, I just knew that the only thing for me was being an Egyptologist. That was the that was the only career I ever really wanted to have. So I always knew from like sort of the like school age that I would go to uni and I would study Egyptology basically. So my kind of first interest in the Ptolemies probably when I was about the age of sort of 16, 17, I was at college, but I think you call it sixth form or high over there, I think, something along those lines. It was before I went to like university anyway. And I had to I had the opportunity to do a thing called an extended project qualification. And you could just kind of write an essay on any topic you wanted and you got extra credit for applying for universities. So I chose to do the Ptolemies, I think, because I was really fascinated by the political intrigue and kind of the murders, incest, all of that sort of crazy stuff that they had going on. And the fact that they were Greeks that ruled Egypt too, I found that very fascinating and how the two cultures existed together. So that was kind of my first interest in the Ptolemies. And then I went to Swansea University when I was 18 and I studied my undergraduate degree there and went on to do a master's there where I did a little bit of stuff on the Ptolemies, but not a lot. So when it came to kind of choosing a PhD topic, I thought I will, I'll give the Ptolemies a go. So that's how I got here, really. In the context for this interview, we've covered the reigns of Ptolemy I Soter and Ptolemy Philadelphus and have a few references to ruler cults in the podcast. That's going to be episodes 33 through 35 if you haven't listened to them already. So I'm pretty sure my listeners have a reasonably good grasp of the period we're talking about. To act as a refresher and offer us a place to begin, let's start with a definition. When we refer to the ruler cult for the Ptolemaic dynasty, what exactly do we mean by that? And when do we get our first evidence that such a practice was occurring? Was the ruler cult looser worship that venerated monarchs who achieved some sort of semi-divine status? Or was it rigorously institutionalized and strictly controlled? So when we talk about the Ptolemaic ruler cult, it's kind of the, the incorporation of the Ptolemies into the religious landscape of their kingdom. And this is both the kings and the queens. And the way it kind of manifests is that they are venerated in quite a few different ways, which I perceive it certainly anyway, 
is that either they're kind of venerated as a collective group, as individual couples, or just individual figures. And it seems to get kind of tied to the cult of Alexander the Great. So the first evidence and the first kind of initiation of the ruler cult is typically deemed to be to have happened underneath the reign of Ptolemy II, where he incorporates the sibling gods, so himself and Arsinoe II, into the cult of Alexander the Great in Alexandria. So the, the priest of Alexander then becomes the priest of Alexander and of the sibling gods. Then each Ptolemy afterwards and each Ptolemy royal couple add themselves to this cult. It's then not really considered finalised until the time of Ptolemy IV, where he retrospectively adds in the cult of the saviour gods, so Ptolemy I and Berenike I. But arguably, this has kind of happened before, in a sense, the, like the cults of the saviour gods, Ptolemy I and Berenike I, are already incorporated into the religious landscape of Egypt during the what's known as the, the pomp or the grand procession of Ptolemy II, which is a big festival that happens in Alexandria. There's quite explicit mentions of statues of Ptolemy I and Alexander the Great as part of this procession. And um, there's also statues of Berenike I. And I think there's also an instance where um, a golden crown is laying at the temple of Berenike I. So they're already incorporated into the like religious landscape of the time before Ptolemy IV retrospectively adds them into the cult of Alexander. And also in like the Canopus Decree of Ptolemy III, there's mentions of provisions being made to the cult of the saviour gods. As far as like how how it's kind of received and how it's implemented, I think it's definitely a more of like a top-down thing. The Ptolemies are implementing this rather than kind of being demanded that, that like the public demanding that they worship them. So for instance, Ptolemy II, he decrees that statues of Arsene II be put throughout all of Egypt's temples. And then she becomes a like a temple sharing goddess and you see this in the Mendy Stela and then kind of further to that point like kind of a, a top like ruler level there's in the titrally of the king so like when the Egyptian king is crowned and he becomes king and he assumes the kingship he gets these like five titular names from the time of Ptolemy III onwards the throne name of the king which is one of the names includes the previous deified royal couple so for instance Ptolemy III is the heir of the sibling gods Ptolemy V is the heir of the gods who love their father. But there is a degree of acceptance of like the ruler cult in the like, local population. You get things like terracotta, king's heads, and faience jugs. Faience is like a kind of ceramic with images of Ptolemaic queens on them. So it was accepted by like local people, but at the same time, it's something that's been implemented top down. The reign of Alexander the Great has often been seen as a transitory period or model for later styles of Hellenistic kingship, especially when it comes to the ideas of divinity. However, the Ptolemies ruled over Egypt, which itself had thousands of years of indigenous traditions relating to a divine monarchy, which may have even influenced Alexander himself by way of the oracle at Siwa. How much do we know about pharaonic rule in regards to a royal cult, and its influence over the cultural attitudes and norms of the native Egyptians? So there's a lot of evidence for cults dedicated to royal ancestors throughout Egyptian history. And this happens in like a royal sphere and at a top level, as well as something that's being done and like something that's happening in the sort of private sphere. 
I think kind of the best way of explaining or giving an example for that is there's a particular king from the old kingdom from the fifth dynasty called Sahure, and he has a like a most kings had like a funerary or mortuary temple which they sort of built to worship after their after their death and his funerary temple is still active and running about 300 years after his death uh, and it continues until the end of the old kingdom and then it doesn't really seem to be active after then. However, during the Middle Kingdom, there's statues are made of him and they're commissioned by the king. So the king, Sinrostra I, for instance, commissions a statue of Sahure. Sahure is then becomes part of like a general worship of royal ancestors, even though kind of where his funeral temple was, that's not really active anymore. And the New Kingdom get Sahure appearing on king's lists, which are again, they're something that happen or they appear in the royal sphere. And, and he becomes part of like this collective worship of royal ancestors and part of like the legitimacy of the ruling king. It aids in that. And then in the kind of like the 18th and 19th dynasties, so the very kind of start of the new kingdom, you get kind of like a not necessarily like syncretization, but this form of the goddess Sekhmet, which is called Sekhmet of Sahure, and she's kind of venerated along with Sahure perhaps at his temple again, which had kind of not been used since the old kingdom. Visitor inscriptions there come from like that time period of the 18th and 19th dynasty and there's also a festival uh, dedicated to this Sekhmet of Sahure in Deir Medina which is in Thebes so the opposite end of the country to where his funerary temple is located and then moving into kind of like the third intermediate late and Ptolemaic periods this Sekhmet of Sahure is still active in like a local sense and there's a priest in from the Ptolemaic period and he one of his titles is priest of Sekhmet in the temple of the Sekhmet of Sahure so the king's memory kind of lasts for a very long time and it manifests in different ways and is utilized by different sections of society so it can be utilized by the royal sphere to aid in legitimacy as part of collective royal ancestors and it's then also being utilized by people in the more private sphere as well on sort of local and perhaps even like not necessarily national levels, but the, the king using it is in a sense kind of an, a national way of commemorating and remembering that king or venerating that king. And this happens with kind of a lot of kings in certain respects. So, for example, when the Ptolemies come to Egypt, there's active cults for Ramesses the Great and for Nectanebo the Second. And interestingly, with like Ramesses the Great, he's termed as the, the great ancestor. And fairly soon after kind of Ramesses the Great's kind of death, there's kind of like almost like a legacy attached around to him. There's uh, the Mortuary Temple of Ramesses III, who is reigning about 100 years later. His Mortuary Temple has a specific chapel dedicated to the deified Ramesses II, which is quite interesting. And it also kind of sort of follows like a new kingdom pattern where in the mortuary temples of the kings all of them have a chapel dedicated to their deified royal immediate predecessor and that kind of must have manifested architecturally into a type of dynasty cult by the time you get to the end of for instance like the 18th or 19th dynasty that all these kings can kind of you have all these temples dedicated to them in this one particular area and inside of them you can you can see who the deified predecessor was in a sense. So I, I kind of wonder if ever the Ptolemies are kind of emulating that in a sense, the way their dynasty cult manifests and develops. And the memory of kings is also kind of can be generally mentioned in the Mendes seal of Ptolemy II. The kings are referred to when I think Ptolemy, he puts like a tax, li tax limit on the gnome. So no, the tax amount can't go over a certain amount. And it mentions in the in the stele that this is the first 
kind of instance of this happening something like this hadn't happened in the times of kings before and then the canopus decree of ptolemy the third talks about like a low nile flood and the text then mentions how this made people remember of similar instances which happened in the times of former kings so yeah there's a there's a lot a lot of evidence and a lot of instances where kings are deified and there's kind of cults dedicated to them and they last for short periods of time or long periods of time with the emphasis on its continuity and its antiquity, how did the cultural memory of the native-born pharaohs affect the way they perceived foreign rulers like the Hyksos, Nubians, Persians, and finally the Macedonians? This is a really interesting question. I think I'll answer it in two different ways. So the memory of certain individual kings can be utilised. So next to Nebo II, for instance, is very important for the Ptolemies. They seem to want to portray themselves as his legitimate successors. So, for instance, there's it's called the dream or the prophecy of Next Nebo, and in this, it's only like we only have the first half of it because the other half is missing. And in it, Next Nebo has a dream, and the god Anuris comes to him and says something along the lines of, you know, my temple isn't finished, or I need a temple dedicated to me. So Next Nebo wakes up, and he decides to build this temple and he finds a person to do it very quickly for him, and he sends this guy out to, you know, build this temple in however whatever amount of time he said he would get it built in. And then the guy gets distracted with some alcohol, and I think a woman might be involved as well, and the temple isn't completed on time. Uh, I think the rest of it is then missing, but the we know, like, obviously, historically, the Persians then reinvaded, and Nectanebo then sort of fled. And then when we look at, like, the archaeological record for that temple, it was finished, um, our, sort of architecturally, and the artistic decoration by Ptolemy II, mainly. So the implication from the rest of that story could be that it was the Ptolemies who then finished that temple and fulfilled the will of the gods, so they are his legitimate successors. And then you also get the story, um, which is quite famous, of Nectanebo disguising himself as a, like a priest and visiting Olympias in Macedonia, and then he becomes sort of Amun and fathers Alexander, Alexander the Great with Olympias. So Nectanebo II is, seems to be important to the Ptolemies in particular. And then you get other periods, um, for instance, like the Nubian rulers of Egypt. They were part of what's known as the Sayite period, where there was this kind of renaissance of art and literature, which imitated the old kingdom. So they're gaining or trying to portray themselves as very old, traditional, original rulers of Egypt through this imitation of their art. And it's sometimes so good that it's difficult to sometimes differentiate what is from the Sayite period and what is from the Old Kingdom. And that's thousands of years apart, those two periods. So the memory of certain specific kings and certain time periods is, can be important and utilised by, like, quote unquote, foreign rulers. However, there's also like a narrative of kingship for the Persians and the Hyksos. There's that time old phrase, which is history is written by the victors. So what we know about them is mainly from the propaganda of the dynasties that came after them. So for the Hyksos, it's the propaganda of the 18th dynasty and the New Kingdom, which we we have this impression that they were like very much hated. So they enter the Hyksos and enter the kingship narrative as kind of this enemy Equally, I think the same happens with the Persians and the Ptolemies make a good effort to portray the Persians as extremely bad and that they obviously then liberated Egypt from them in a sense and, and they can do that. So, for instance, there's a lot of emphasis on recovering statues that were stolen by the Persians. All the early Ptolemies kind of claim to do this. 
there's also interestingly when you compare those kind of narratives and the instances of foreign rule in Egypt there's kind of this other like general narrative of kingship which you see in like the iconography where you have like Libyans and Nubians as being traditional enemies of Egypt and the king you you see like in smiting scenes where the king is kind of like bashing these people over the head restoring order because like they've invaded or he goes and like takes their lands and that kind of thing but they end up certain periods those people end up assuming the kingship in some way but they don't suffer the same discreditation in the narrative of kingship like the Hyksos and the Persians do there's a lot of different ways that that manifests Connecting to my previous questions, do you believe that the Ptolemies were more influenced by the Egyptian system, or was this a natural evolution from the Greco-Macedonian idea of kingship and divinity by way of Alexander, with adopted Egyptian elements? I think with the the traditional kind of notion is that it is the latter point, and that they are gaining this kind of divinity in association with, with Alexander. And I think it's because the, the narrative of the ruler cult is kind of how I described it and mentioned it in one of the earlier questions, is how it's tied to the cult of Alexander the Great. But I think, I kind of think, and I see it the other way round, in that they are using the cult of Alexander to implement the Egyptian notions of kingship and making it acceptable to their Greek audience. Because <laughs> I think that like when you, there's that kind of story of when Alexander kind of finally took over the Persian Empire and took all the territories and he started started adopting these like Persian kingship practices, like in the way he dressed and things that he was doing. And his peers and his like Macedonian, the elite that centred around him really didn't like that and they really hated that the kind of narrative we get from it anyway so i wonder if if that is true that the ptolemies were aware that they had to kind of make their egyptian kingship acceptable to their greek audience so and because i think it, assuming the egyptian kingship and fulfilling that role of the egyptian king was probably important for them in being able to hold on to the territory so that they had to kind of get involved with it and alexander the cult of alexander is the perfect way of making Egyptian kingship acceptable because to, to the Greeks because Alexander is two things he's both the founder of Alexandria so he can be included in our discussion on the kind of founder cult phenomenon he's also a legitimate Egyptian royal ancestor so it makes sense that he's kind of the figure which they can combine those two elements and make Egyptian kingship acceptable to their Greek subjects and I, I wonder as well whether the Ptolemies would have had would have struggled with their Greek subjects in the sense that in the Greek world there's this democracy versus monarchy thing going on and whether that was even more of a struggle because not only did they have to persuade their like Greek population that monarchy was the answer but also an Egyptian monarchy was the answer so that I think that's how I perceive it and how I kind of want to research it I kind of want to see where that takes me for sure. By the coronation of Ptolemy II, Egypt had been under control by the Macedonian dynasty for almost 40 years, plenty of time to be exposed to the customs and rituals of the land. But Greek encounters with the pharaonic tradition goes back to at least the time of Herodotus, if we are going by written accounts, and definitely long before with mercenaries and traders. Did the Ptolemies truly understand what they were trying to emulate or consciously take in those Egyptian ideas? Or was it more of a veneer of paint and propaganda in an attempt to assert control, and at its core, more in line with a Macedonian-style rule? I think the kind of 
latter viewpoint on that and that it was just kind of the Egyptian element of their kingship was just kind of a veneer is maybe kind of rooted in the early 20th century colonial view on the time period and in that in that the Greeks were like Hellenizing the Eastern empires and they were bringing like a superior culture to them and I think that's very like obviously very outdated and it kind of gives the impression that Ptolemies were willfully ignorant of the culture they were ruling over and it doesn't really help when we have things like the assumption that Cleopatra the seventh as like the last one of the Ptolemies was the only one to have learned to speak native Egyptian I don't really buy that if I'm honest because I think that it was a, it would have been a very silly idea to rule a country and not be able to speak the language of the most of its inhabitants. I don't I don't see them ruling Egypt for 300 years through interpreters, even if Greek did in especially northern Egypt become the more predominant language. I I don't think they were like so ignorant of it. And I think the Ptolemies, you know, I think they were participating in Egyptian traditions and they certainly invested in its local institutions with the amount of temple building they did. And in a few of those different kind of sources that I mentioned earlier, like the Mendy Steeler, the Canopus Decree, they are the indications that they're participating in those kind of rituals. As far as whether they like understood the cult, or maybe like the ruler cult aspect of Egyptian kind of religious tradition, there's a, uh, there's a couple of priests from Memphis that think they're father and son. And the father, I think, was involved in the cult of Ramesses II, and the son was involved in the cult of Netanebo II. They then adopt titles that show that they were involved in the cult of Artinu or Artinuay II in their kind of like priestly titles. So I think the Ptolemies are aware how of how to implement this like rule of cult. And I think with the whole veneer argument, because the way Egyptian kingship kind of works is you have this, the Egyptian king had to be everything to everyone, but we know that that wasn't realistic. So the king was the only one who was allowed to be depicted in temples as offering to the gods because he was the sole intermediary between the divine world and the human world. But we know in practice that he couldn't have been going up and down the country every single day making offerings in all of its temples. That just is unrealistic. So in reality, it was the priests that were fulfilling this function. And equally over different time periods, the, you know, the king could have taken like a more military role or a more kind of um, economic role or religious role. Like he had to balance these things. And in, you know, in reality others and officials have been like picking up the slack of this but conceptually and in the official iconographic record he was doing all these things so the question is whether how much kingship or Egyptian kingship could have been used as a veneer in any time period and you know we could use that assessment for any king in a sense but what is interesting I, I've read something recently about how sort of taking the conversation more back towards the Ptolemies is that Darius the first thing is mentioned by Diodorus as being educated in Egyptian theology whether that's true or not obviously we have no way of like kind of knowing but it wouldn't surprise me if that was actually real like in reality that was happening and the Ptolemies were educated in like the theology of the country that they were ruling it makes sense. I don't think they were like ignorant of Egyptian culture. One of my favorite examples of communication between elite and commoners is the parable of Christ and the Roman denarius in the book of Matthew, render unto Caesar and all that. But this was a Roman emperor speaking through a Roman medium to non-Roman subjects and peoples. How did the Ptolemies present themselves to their native Egyptian subjects, at least in regards to artistic depictions or ritual practices? 
with the like traditional institutions so like the temples they are remaining absolutely most of the like all the time as being represented as the traditional Egyptian king so for like obviously for the natives that are using like native institutions they see the Ptolemies as traditional kings in these images interestingly you, you sometimes get these almost like hybrid images where you do get the images mainly Egyptian and but you have like these tiny little sort of Greek additions to it so for some statues you'll have an image of the Ptolemies of, of a Ptolemaic king and there'll be like a little bit of sort of curly hair poking underneath crown and that's something that's new for the period and kind of is like reminiscent of more like traditional sort of Greek statuary and then interestingly there's the Rafa decree of Ptolemy the fourth is there's like a really interesting depiction where you have like the stela and it's all it all look format is all kind of traditional Egyptian it's written in hieroglyphs with the kind of lunette at the top all the figures are traditionally Egyptian except for the king who is shown in Macedonian armour on like rearing horseback and that's I find those images really fascinating because they kind of ask a lot of questions like who is the audience why are they depicting it like this what is the space in which this is being displayed who is it being used by could it is it being used by both an Egyptian and a Greek cultural communities or are they like mixed communities because I expect by the sort of mid like mid Ptolemaic period you will have people that had two parents from the two different cultural spheres as far as we like ritual is concerned I mentioned in the previously about like the Mendes Stela, for instance, where the king is described as offering to the bull of Mendes. You have from the time of Ptolemy the fifth, the king is participating in a traditional coronation ceremony when he goes to Memphis and is crowned in Edfu Temple when that was finally built. The texts emphasise that the king was actually there and he actually opened the temple. And kind of one of my one of my like favourites is the mentioned earlier the grand procession of Ptolemy II it was like a really big festival that was held in Alexandria but when I first read that text at university doing my undergraduate degree I remember thinking that it sounded very much like um, a traditional Egyptian said festival which was to kind of summarize it briefly for you was like a renewal ritual that happened after the king had ruled for about 30 years and it was designed to kind of rejuvenate the kingship after like a long period of time. And a lot of the elements of it sound like the said festival to me. So I wonder whether that's a Greek interpretation of an Egyptian ritual. The scholarship hasn't really been done on us as to why it is an Egyptian said festival, not just like a Greek ritual procession. And I think that like other scholars have kind of attempted to reinterpret some of these rituals that we get in the sort of Greek record. So for example, the Alexander's visit to Siwa, the actual account of it, as, a, as has survived to us, doesn't match up with the archaeological record. So it's quite possible that what actually happened at the site was the way it would have traditionally been done. However, the Greeks are writing about it so that it makes sense to a Greek audience. Um, and people that weren't centred around that locality. So I certainly think that they were participating in Egyptian rituals and they were taking this role of Egyptian king seriously. So yeah, I think I think they did understand. The reign of Ptolemy II was also the introduction of royal sibling incest into the dynasty by way of his marriage to his sister, the formidable Arsinoe II. How did Ptolemaic queens associate themselves with the ruler cult? And did the cultural attitudes of the Egyptians in regards to the notions of female rulership 
play a major role into why Ptolemaic royal women were more politically active compared to their other Greco-Macedonian counterparts. So the Ptolemaic queens are pretty much integral from the get-go into the ruler cult. Ptolemy II instigates the cult of Arsenu II, and then each Ptolemaic royal couple gets added to the cult of Alexander. So they are a really integral element of the ruler cult. And the popularity of the cults to these of the Ptolemaic queens is really it is very prominent and is very popular. As far as like the notions of whether they were influenced by the Egyptian notions of female rulership, it's a possibility. And I'm not 100% sure, but with the Egyptian notion of female rulership, it's kind of interesting because you have this kind of queenship model in a sense where royal women have like this renewal function to the kingship. They are the ones that like physically regenerate and renew it. Like we have the term king and queen. They didn't really have the same titles in that respect. Women weren't female kings. They were, their titles derived from their relationship to the king. So a traditional Egyptian queen will be called either like the mother of the king or wife of the king, great wife of the king, daughter of the king, sister of the king. And they have like a, a secondary role or like an assistant role in when you look at the kind of ritual and religious function, because the king can only be, is the only one that can make offerings to the gods. He's like the sole ritual kind of leader in the temples, um, as is depicted anyway. We know obviously that's not what happened in reality. And queens can assist in rituals by like shaking sistrum and like that's kind of one of their roles. But then they're not they're not equal to the king in any way. I mean, a few women do actually assume the kingship, like famous ones are Hatshepsut. Other examples are Sobek Nefru from the end of the 12th dynasty, I think, um, towards the end of the Middle Kingdom. And to the end of the 19th dynasty, you get to Osirets. But what's interesting about the Ptolemaic queens is that they do, in like the in Egyptian temples, they do maintain this, at least the like living queens, maintain this secondary role where in the rituals they're kind of shaking the sistrum. They're not usually the ones that make like a direct offering to the god. Um, it's usually the like male king that does that. But in a couple of interesting scenes, I think there is instances where the queen is depicted in front of the king, even though she maintains the traditional role of a queen, which kind of is maybe a subtle way of indicating that she had greater political power. And certainly the Egyptians weren't, although it was a, it was generally a patriarchal society, they weren't shy of having of royal women actually having and exercising political power, but it was never really shown in like official areas like temples because it was the narrative of kingship is that the king is the only one that can exercise these kind of things. And women never really assume prerogatives of kingship. But what's interesting as well about the Ptolemaic queens is that they they do take on like a Horus name. I think I mentioned previously about the kind of five titular names of the king. Um, and so the Ptolemy, Ptolemaic queens, some of them have like a, a birth name. So like us in a way, Veronique, that kind of thing. And then they adopt like a, a titular name, but they don't go the full hog and take all five names. So I, I think that like it potentially aided them, this notion of women actually allowing, allowing women to, women to exercise political and economic kind of power, but not really being shown so much. And I wonder with like the ruler cult, whether because they were being deified, 
whether that gave them permission to really explicitly like exercise some kind of political power whereas their kind of Macedonian and like Greco-Macedonian counterparts elsewhere in other Hellenistic kingdoms couldn't or I wonder sometimes whether the, their incorporation into the ruler cult is just a reflection of their political power um, and I mean you get you get women like Olympias I think from the Alexander's mother and she commands armies and kind of acts, acts like a king I suppose and even women like sort of um, Roxana and Ptolemy, uh, Alexander's sister Cleopatra, they obviously had some kind of political importance because they wouldn't have been assassinated if they didn't, um, if they weren't like important for the kind of successors to kind of, it would have aided in their legitimacy and that's why Ptolemy the first for instance probably offered or agreed to like, there was that marriage arranged between him and Alexander's sister. So yeah, I think Ultimately, I think that it's possibly it's a possibility that they were influenced by the Egyptian notions of female rulership, but I wouldn't say that it was the only reason. On that, I think this is an excellent spot to leave off. Before we go, I just wanted to thank you once again for giving us your time to come onto the show. And do you have any plans or accounts you would wish to plug? Uh, I don't have any accounts I wish to plug. Um, I'll probably, over the next few years, maybe write a few articles, so... I will probably post them somewhere, hopefully, but there's no specific plans as, as of yet in that regard. Well, either way, thank you once again for coming on. I hope to hear from you soon and would love to see more stuff develop from the Egyptian side of the Ptolemaic dynasty, especially since my narrative is dominated by the Greco-Macedonians, so all of this has been a great help for me and my listeners. Much, yes. Hopefully I'll um, be able to provide like more detailed information. I feel as though most of those questions I could have I could I could write loads of essays on all of them. So it was difficult to kind of get in get in enough information and into those questions. Good to hear. So, in the meanwhile, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast. <laughs>